Welcome to this episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics and that affect our lives in a myriad of ways. Our subject today is old authorities and contemporary constitutions, considering how and why certain works and certain figures from the past carry authority in contemporary constitutional arrangements and arguments. My name is John Hudson, and with me I have Jim Gallagher, Janet McLean, and Aidan O'Neill. Jim Gallagher is a former civil servant who headed the Scottish Justice Department. He was the UK government's most senior advisor on devolution and other constitutional issues, working in the Cabinet Office and the Number 10 Policy Unit under Gordon Brown. Janet McLean is Professor of Law at the University of Auckland, New Zealand, and a specialist in constitutional law, contemporary and historical. In addition to her academic work, she is a QC New Zealand, a special advisor to the Parliamentary Privileges Committee of the House of Representatives, considering the New Zealand Bill of Rights Amendment Bill, and has recently been commissioned by the New Zealand Law Commission to assess legal readiness for the next pandemic. Aidan O'Neill, QC, is a barrister and Queen's Council in both England and Scotland. He's ranked among the top 10 council in the UK in terms of the number of appearances before the UK Supreme Court. In September 2019, Aidan appeared before the UK Supreme Court in Cherry Miller II, where the court unanimously upheld the ruling at the inner house of the Court of Session that the Prime Minister's advice to the Queen that she prorogue Parliament in the run-up to the then Brexit day of 31st October 2019 was unlawful. So to start, I was wondering if you could give us some examples of the use of works or authors from the past that are used to carry authority in contemporary legal or constitutional debate. And Jim, would you like to start us off? Well, my favourite example of someone used in this way, uh, and still uh, to this day, is Walter Badgett. Uh, He, of course, was an essentially journalistic figure uh, in the 19th century uh, and described the British Constitution, as he saw it very famously, uh, at a time of around the, the, the late 1860s. And there's a splendidly triumphal stare to Badgett. And Britain's doing terribly well. It's running a very large empire. Uh, everything's going just swimmingly. And this must be because of our splendid constitutional arrangements, uh, which he describes lovingly and very accurately. Um, he is a journalistic figure. He's also a businessman and, and uh, someone uh, who has views which are arguably pretty typical of his time and wouldn't go down very well at all today. And on one view, he's actually quite a fine social scientist, but he is used frequently and certainly uh, substantially in the 20th century as a kind of normative description of how the British constitution not just is, but ought to be. And of course, all his unstated uh, um, uh, preconceptions and his assumptions about why it is a good thing uh, are, are left still unstated. I think Badgett's an excellent example to the extent that The Economist's political uh, commentator to this day is called Badgett. Janet, would you take us on from there? Uh, The person that I thought of is Matthew Hale. That's the Sir Matthew Hale, the 17th century Sir Matthew Hale, who ended up as Chief Justice of the King's Bench, isn't it? Uh, He was used in uh, some quite modern 
cases that seem very unlikely. So a case involving a casino where someone is winning every time and he's being ejected because he's winning against the casino. And in the case that uh, challenged his ejection from the casino, they used Sir Matthew Hale and the idea of what trespass was and what property was and what it might be, mean to be in a public place. So I thought that was a very long bow uh, to go back to Hale for that. Aidan, what example would you like to give? I'd like to give Aristotle, actually. Um, it's actually rather interesting how relatively often Aristotle has been referred to of late. Certainly, uh, as a case in the House of Lords, uh, uh, Majewski, about issues around just whether you can criminally liable if you are in a state of intoxication. That's a case in 1977. But Lord Edmund Davis uh, notes that Aristotle <laughs> thought in the ethics that actually that made you doubly liable rather than escaping liability because you got yourself drunk and then uh, you commit, committed an offence. But more recently, actually, Aristotle and, and particularly ethics has been referred to in, in terms of the development of the concept of proportionality uh, in Bank Mellat. Uh, and interesting, uh, it's uh, Robert Reed, uh, now the president of the Supreme Court, refers to Aristotle as mediated through Aquinas. Now, that's a, that's a very Scottish uh, thing, I think. It's a very Edinburgh University thing. One of the first things that I noticed when I uh, started law at Edinburgh in 1978 in the law library was uh, they had the complete uh, Summa Theologica, and, and that then was a, a point of reference. So Aristotle, mediated through Aquinas, scholasticism, is then picked up uh, in uh, the works and analysis of, of Viscount Steer, in his uh, Institute of the Law of Scotland. So Aristotelianism, I think, is, is, is a really interesting line of intellectual engagement and inquiry. That's a very interesting example of seeing how there is an authority and one can trace his authority via other people who are of authoritative status, but now tends to be referred back to the original purpose rather than the line of authority being transmitted. Janet, would you like to say a bit more about how such figures, how such works come to carry authority? Quite a provoking question, because lots of people wrote lots of things, and only some of these authorities are well known to law. And I had a little list. I didn't have Aristotle in my list, but I thought of Edward Cook, Maitland, Hale, Blackstone, Dicey, Badgett were on my list of people who were important and I think partly they're important because they said some general things and they said some general things that got common lawyers out of the knots of the particular so the common law is all is defined by precedent and you can often run dry distinguish cases on their facts or their statutes and run dry for the, the bigger principle and I think that these writers say something bigger that can be returned to when the law runs out or runs dry. The other thing I think might be important, but not always, is that a lot of these authorities, Cook is one who's really special for this, they were both actors and commentators. So uh, Cook's commentaries sometimes don't really describe what the cases actually stood for, but can be used for things that 
Cook hoped the cases would stand for. So they, they speak to the future in a less cluttered way than perhaps the case law might do. Aidan, would you like to carry on? Yeah, I, I would actually. I mean, it's very interesting, Janet. And it's, uh, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that the, the uh, when you say common law, I, I would emphasise the English common law aspect of, uh, in a sense, not being an intellectual discipline, being a being a trade that one doesn't learn at university, and then is one which is developed on. Well, this is what we did before past president specific facts, uh, and you get overwhelmed by, and you can then distinguish. The particular facts and and build up in a sense this this structure and but being able to stand back and then try and create or or, or discern principles from that is is certainly been a an important uh, intellectual exercise and I agree with you that uh, people like Blackstone and uh, and Hale and Cook are doing that but the interesting thing in Scotland is that you also have, you do have very much a conscious tradition of creating what are called institutional works from, and again, that's part of the, 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 the Roman Dutch approach uh, to study of law as an intellectual discipline as being part of a university curriculum. And before codification, what you get are people standing right and saying, this is a complete introduction, say, grossius to, to, to Roman Dutch private law, uh, or, 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 or this is the general law as applies to war and peace, says Grossius. Puffendorf is, is doing similar stuff. And then in, with Scotland, with the links with uh, the low countries uh, from an intellectual point of view, from universities, exchanges, you then get the same phenomenon particularly uh, with uh, Viscount Stairs Institute of the Law of Scotland, which is the seminal work, which is constantly referred to in Scotland as the summa of Scots law. And he's writing in whatever it is, 1680, so 1680s, 1690s. And again, he's like Cook in the sense that he's a player as well uh, in that he is the Lord President of the Court of Session and therefore refers to previous judgments of his as authority for the general principles, which he's uh, then setting out and, uh, and building up. So that, that was very much, I think, a, a conscious creation of writing for the future, as you say, and uh, to be the foundation stone for a tradition uh, and also the protection of the individuality of that particular legal system. But as I say, and interestingly, from an intellectual point of view, it was also imbued with uh, with late medieval scholasticism. Aristotle was absolutely central to the to the Scottish University curriculum, and all lawyers had to study philosophy. I think that is a very important distinction between Scotland and England. Um, and then certainly, when I was at law school, we were told that you had to be dead before you were authoritative and could be used in court, and that is very much the English common law tradition. They've eased that now, but that was, it's mm. not an institutional tradition, unlike the Scottish one. Jim? I think the, the interesting thing about people who are quoted as authorities, and this goes, this counts from everybody from Aristotle onwards, is that they gave answers to questions which stepped back from the issue you were struggling with today. Uh, and that's even true of Bajet. I mean, he gave answers to questions about how power was and should be allocated in the British Constitution. It's very obviously true of Aristotle, and it's true of lots of these institutional writers too. And when you are addressing yourself to today's problem, uh, it really does help, actually, to be fair, uh, to uh, have somebody who has addressed a similar analogous uh, problem in the circumstances of their time. 
course, the weakness of that is that you get an answer which is driven by the circumstances of their time. And that is as true of Aristotle as it is of Badgett. And uh, when, when we are you know, faced with, with new difficulties, whether it's in a court case or in a political or constitutional argument, there's nothing wrong with reaching back to the past to see uh, somebody of authority and somebody of, um, uh, we assume, wisdom who has uh, addressed it before. Uh, as we'll go on to discuss, uh, the question is just how binding should they be and just how much attention should you pay to them? Jim has mentioned the, in a sense, the limits of the historicization of them, and these are being used for presentist purposes. Might their use best be referred to as rhetorical? I mean, Aidan, you would use past authorities in court. Would you say your use of them is rhetorical? Um, <clears throat> I say everything I do in court is rhetorical. If a case comes to court, it means that uh, the answer <clears throat> about it is disputed. So you'll use whatever you can to try and uh, persuade the court round to whatever it is that you are doing. One of the interesting things, which uh, if I give a, a, a specific example, the case of Whiteman was the issue about whether or not the Article 50 notification of intention to leave the European Union uh, could be revoked unilaterally by a member state. And that was a case which uh, we brought in, in in Scotland to try and get the Scottish court to refer the issue to the European Court of Justice uh, to give clarity to politicians. Now, at some levels, that was a, a radically different approach to how one how, how generally the courts are engaged in constitutional issues, because it was a constitutional issue which was not a live constitutional issue, in that the UK government said, we don't care whether it's unilaterally revocable or not, we're not going to revoke it. Uh, so this is an entirely academic uh, and hypothetical issue which will never arise in real life. Now, somewhat radically, the inner house was persuaded that this was actually an issue which was worth it considering and referring to the Court of Justice. And in so doing, they transformed the previously restrictive approaches to allow people to come to go to ask legal questions by saying, actually, no, our approach has always been uh, that anyone can come to the court and ask any question uh, which it likes. And it might be the reasons for efficiency why we would say, actually, maybe you should, maybe you should, maybe it should be a real question, maybe you should have some kind of standing. But in deciding and in making this effectively revolutionary turn. The court then says, well, of course it's always been the case, because look, Bankton, uh, another Scottish institutional writer writing in the 1750s, uh, says something along those lines. And then there are some 18th century cases uh, which we can uh, quote. Now, the interesting thing is none of those ancient 18th century Scottish authorities were referred to in uh, by counsel before the court. They were what the court itself produced uh, by way of justification for what was a radical shift and saying, but it's always been rooted in the past. So that's uh, as part of the maintaining the, the idea that the courts never make the law, but only discover it as, as archaeologists scraping away the accretions or the misunderstandings of the past. The court will use, and you could say that's rhetorical, use the past in a manner to create the future. Uh, but it's, so it's not just advocates before the court that do it, it's uh, the, uh, the court itself. And similarly, you could say that the, the references to proportionality, which again is a new 
principle which had a lot of opposition uh, to it within uh, particularly English administrative law. It was seen to be a European Germanic importation for helpless messy kites. By rooting it not in Germanic foreignness, but in solid Aristotelian intellectual heft, you can then say it's very old, <clears throat> it's not new, and if Aristotle thought it was good, then it can't be so bad. So, that, but again, those this is, I very much doubt whether Council and Bank Mellat referred to the Nicomachean ethics. You never know, it's the kind of thing I'd do, but not many others would do it. So the courts themselves are using uh, these ancient texts and making them authoritative uh, and using them as justification. Yes, of course, the use is rhetorical, often shamelessly so. Um, and of course, I'm not referring to Aidan when I say that. Uh, the, uh, the, I thought the, the case of Whiteman was truly extraordinary. Uh, the, the court recession turned into sixpence, not because of Aristotle, but because they were so irritated by what was going on over Europe. But let's be absolutely honest about this. Um, and of course, uh, as Aidan says, in court, um, in a sense, everything is rhetorical. This is about uh, making an argument. And it's certainly the case that the more uh, in more uh, in wider um, discourse about constitutional issues, um, the the appeal to authority is often used. And since we're on Aristotle, it's an alternative to the appeal to reason, which is fine. And um, sometimes it, it, it is really very helpful to to dig in your argument for ancient uh, uh, and hoary uh, ideas, which no one really quite knows about, but which sound rather good. My other uh, two other favourite examples of this, which are rather more political than legal. Uh, the first is the the reference, and I'm sure Aidan's been uh, on this one to uh, to the Declaration of Arbroath, which is uh, or which was uh, a squabble between different Normans in different parts of the island of Britain, uh, used to uh, create an argument about uh, the nature of the constitutional settlement of the uh, ancient state or the ancient country of Scotland, uh, which is great fun, but complete nonsense. Uh, 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 and the other similar one, which is also quite fun, but complete nonsense, was the splendid day in which the first presiding officer, the first person to preside over the newly created Scottish Parliament in 1999, uh, solemnly declared that the Scottish Parliament had been reconvened, uh, thus attracting a patina of age uh, to a very modern institution. Uh, rhetoric is good fun, uh, and sometimes it's very influential, it's a, uh, and Aidan has been uh, uh, extremely influential in the use of it, but we've got to be clear uh, when it's rational and when it's not. I, I like this notion that a reference to an authority in what Jim said, of a reference to Aristotle is a different way of saying this is an argument from reason as opposed to strictly from definitive legal norms. Janet, would you like to add to this bit of the discussion? Yeah, I think that's a nice distinction, though sometimes authority and reason comes from a whole lot of other places. So sometimes there's a distinction that I think Jim's making, but sometimes we just like there are a lot of institutional writers, but only some get referred to, there's a huge number of cases and some are iconic. And sometimes it's a dissenting judgment that's iconic and is used in that way. And similarly, you know, if you're reaching back to the Magna Carta, you probably are a bit desperate, but in this, <laughs> but it is, has, you know, it has all the provenance that you need and, and you often need 
the most provenance when you're doing something that's the most novel as well. So there's, there's that goes on as well. When you, you run out of recent authority, you go back as far as you can to make it look as though you're not doing anything new. And these are devices that we use all the time across all of the different sources of law that judges and advocates use. That's very interesting. And you, you hinted particularly with, or, or more than hinted, that with references to Magna Carta, this may be a method used when people are rather worried about their arguments. So uh, I'm wondering more generally, is the use of <coughs> authorities often a sign of weakness in argument? I think we'd better not start with Aidan on this, having heard how often he uses <laughs> these authorities. Let's start yeah. with Jim. I think weakness is probably the wrong word. It may, as Janet says, be occasionally a sign of desperation. That's to say, where can I go uh, to begin this argument? Uh, because I can't ground it in things which are self-evident or, or um, statute or uh, authorities which are uh, absolutely modern and up-to-date, which, which pin themselves uh, on the issue, which is for determination here. But I think weakness is probably um, uh, an unkind way of characterising that. What it's saying is that the question which is being uh, addressed is really quite an open one. Uh, there are potentially uh, different solutions here, and the answer isn't uh, from there isn't a narrow solution set for the answer. There's quite a, quite a wide range of possibilities, and one needs to step quite far back, both in terms of principle and therefore in terms of history. Um, and I, I agree with that. Once you start uh, quoting Magna Carta, or for that matter, the Declaration of our Broth, uh, you're, 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 you're adding colour rather, rather than content. But there's no, there's no real harm in that. Uh, and when an issue uh, is uh, relatively new and relatively open, then locating it in a historical context is actually quite helpful, I think. So not necessarily a weakness. Janet, would you like to take that on further? read a commentary on the Miller case where Professor Paul Craig said of someone else's argument that that is an argument which would have appealed to the Stuart monarchs. And I thought that that was exactly in that phrase, bringing the whole weight of constitutional history to bear. And we all know what that means. We mean that that's an executive minded approach. And appealing to the 17th century is to stop you in your tracks and examine your principles and which side you would have been on in the 17th century. So as a device, it's quite a potent one. That, that example is particularly interesting because it, it's a very shorthand way of referring to history in a way that everyone will know and therefore it doesn't need expounding. Whether it is accurate is unclear and uncertain. It is a nice example, though, because it is a different way of referring to a tradition in Scottish constitutional thought that is sometimes hidden when people refer to the Scottish tradition in constitutional thought as, in some sense, popular. So we can ask someone who does this uh, whether such references are a sign of weakness in argument. Aidan. Yes, 
I mean, I've, I've just looked up two things on in, on Westlaw. The number of references to Magna Carta in cases in their case search is 234. The most recent being the Privy Council in a case from 24th of May 2021. Magna Carta is referred to a lot in England. I mean, you might say that is utterly historical. And what is it doing? I, I think I think you're right, John. That it's actually to do with the echoing back to there is a long tradition, a long tradition of usually it's in public law cases of of executive power being bounded uh, within England and. You know, Johnson's assumption attacked you, so my, as an historian, saying this is just nonsense. Uh, but the rhetorical force and the fact that it's still seen as not simply the last desperate uh, throw of uh, somebody with no arguments getting the vibe of the Constitution, as it were, um, it's interesting. 234 references. I've then looked up the Declaration of Our Growth, and there are three references. Uh, one from a case by Robbie the Pitt, a party litigant. The secondly, from the case of the Scottish Indigenous people who were uh, whose argument was presented by a reincarnation of Jesus Christ uh, before the court. That was in terms of whether they were allowed to encamp outside the Royal High School or was it the Parliament actually, the Holy Parliament. And the third one is one of my cases. But to defend myself, and I, I will say that it's interesting that the Declaration of Our Both is, is actually, when one looks at it, really quite an interesting and sophisticated political philosophical document. What is it doing? It's an appeal to an international arbitrator, Pope John XXII, on a matter of international law to do with the recognition of international boundaries. Popes did this subsequently as an between Spain and Portugal in terms of determining who gets to uh, exploit the new world. So referring to Pope John XXII in Avignon, who was, I think, the Pope which the Scots recognised, but the English didn't. And it echoes an earlier document from five years earlier, the remonstrance of the Irish princes, to, again to Pope John XXII, complaining about the depredations of the invasions of Ireland by the English king, saying we want to set up Edward Bruce, who happens to be the brother of Robert Bruce, who's the king of Scots and, you know, is a good Catholic and wants to go on crusades uh, with you. So... As an historical document, it's really quite interesting, but the legal, the political philosophical aspects to it are, are even more interesting in terms of the, it does embody some notion of popular sovereignty, which echoes uh, some of the work of, of Marsilius of Padua writing contemporaneously uh, in, in, in Defence or Patches. So it's, if you want to invent a tradition, and all traditions are invented, the Scottish public law constitutional tradition has to be reinvented because, although we've got an invented private law tradition from Stair onwards, Stair, Viscount Stair and his institutes, didn't refer to any aspects of the politics of the day. He just focused on private law. And that what then happened, uh, the politics of the day being so uh, difficult, he had to flee to Scotland, was invaded under Cromwell. The uh, court of session had to uh, flee to, to the Low Countries, then came back. The, uh, the, you know, the, the whole glorious revolution, the overthrow of, of, of James VII. Uh, so politics was a, was a, a big uh, uh, and very sensitive issue, and Steer ignores it all to the extent that the tradition that was then developed in Scotland uh, was that there was no such thing as public law. They would say that's an English thing. Public law doesn't exist. I, you know, I, I have to fight that and say, strangely, it's mentioned in the Treaty of Union. There's a difference 
in the Treaty of Union between the public law, it says, matters affecting public right, uh, which can be harmonised throughout the UK, and those uh, referring to private rights, which can only be changed except for the evident utility uh, of the subjects in Scotland. So uh, the distinction between public law and private law had been forgotten in the Scottish constitutional, in the Scottish tradition. And if you are attempting to rebuild that, then it does seem to me that if the English can start with Magna Carta, we can start with the Declaration of Our Rules. And we've got some really interesting political philosophical works within the Scottish constitutional tradition, which interestingly were not referring to Aristotle's ethics, but Aristotle's politics. And then you have uh, the fact is that uh, George Buchanan's the Yuri Renyapud Scotos is a fascinating, absolutely fascinating work and does say something about popular sovereignty. Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex in the 1640s. Again, these are radical and interesting issues, but they've been lost to Scottish constitutional uh, history because, in a sense, that was then built up in the 18th century onwards when Scotland was depoliticised. The point of the union was you maintain a legal system, but not a political system. The political structures were dismantled uh, and a vice regality was effectively created uh, for Scotland. And and the law continued as a purely private law thing. So uh, now that we are aware that there is public law, that, that constitutional issues are real issues of law and come before the courts, and if they're coming before the courts in Scotland, you can't refer to Magna Carta, because not just, on the basis that it's nothing to do with us, um, you know, how, how dare you refer to English authority? You have to refer them to something else, and that something else is the Declaration of Our Growth. It is good fun, but it's also, it's also intellectually stimulating and interesting. It may not be history, but it is the invention of tradition, and once a tradition is invented, then one builds upon that uh, before the courts. Yes, it's, it's very interesting that you pick out Jonathan Sumption as a critic of the uses of historical and particularly medieval historical examples because he's a very good medieval historian. Mm. It, and this criticism is often used, and it's used, for example, again, of American Supreme Court justices mm. referring to Magna Carta. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's unfair because some of those who do have very good historical training and would never if they were talking about history, refer to Magna Carta in that way. They're doing something different when they're doing so. And I'm sure this is, at least in some cases, at least in the historically minded cases, conscious. I'm getting the sense then that the use of these authorities often is a sign of a lack of more definitive norms, be they legal or constitutional, regarding a particular situation. Am I right about that, Jim? Yes, I think you are. I mean, if you knew what the answer was, you wouldn't be asking Magna Carta for an opinion, right? If, if there were well-defined constitutional rules about something, whatever it might be, who's allowed to prorogue Parliament, for example, then you wouldn't have to reach into history to find some story uh, to make your argument. Uh, and of course, and what we're seeing here, uh, and perfectly properly, uh, is people arguing about the allocation of power. Who should be able to do this or that? Who should have authority over this or that? If that was well-defined, we, we wouldn't be having great fun by, by talking about what the medievals thought about it. So, yes. Janet, would you agree? I think it's a search for principle, which is what lawyers are always trying to do, to find what are the animators of the law. And the other thing that I think has to be borne in mind is how much institutions change 
So you're always trying to adapt principle to new institutions, especially new public law institutions, especially those institutions around monarchy at the point where it becomes constitutional monarchy. So I don't think that there's any, this shouldn't be cast as a sort of illegitimate project. I think it's a perfectly legitimate project to search for legal principle. Aidan, I think you'd probably agree. Well, I agree with Janet on that, yes. The, the, the reference to older authorities is part of the notion of the embeddedness of the institutions within the culture, that one isn't doing something new, that this is this has always been the case. Now, you might say rhetorically that's, uh, that's a rhetorical obscuring device, but actually it's important that institutions are seen to be embedded and part of a richer and longer culture. So referring to earlier, earlier examples, whether it's Magna Carta or whatever, in the distant past or Aristotle or Aquinas, is saying, look, we are part of a long story. And it may be that we're developing it. It may be that we're speaking to the present, but we are speaking using the uh, resources of the past. And even you find that in, in even when you have a codified constitution, which apparently does set out the powers of the presidency and, and Congress and whatever, as in the United States, you still have, not just among originalists, references to the past. Scalia used to say, look, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the most comparative lawyer on the court because I refer to Blackstone constantly because anything up until uh, his last edition was authority, remains authority in the, in the US as, as the source of the Constitution. But because constitutions are necessarily drafted in porous, permeable language in, in general principle, one is always still attempting to ground those by reference to uh, where they came from in the past, even if you don't see that you're necessarily bound by the original understanding of, of those uh, who originally drafted the Constitution. So I, I think it's a perfectly legitimate and proper way in which judicial decision-making is made, as well as judicial arguments are made before the judiciary. We're saying fair amount, both of the drawbacks and the advantages of using such authoritative works. I wanted just to finish this bit of difficulties, asking whether there are any other problems that we should identify. And I was wondering whether, starting with Janet, whether there's anything that you would say from a New Zealand perspective in particular, because we've largely been concentrated on the English and Scottish contexts. I think um, in my own working life, the idea that the king can do no wrong and can't even think anything wrong has been a really difficult idea, especially as in the 19th century, New Zealand did hold the crown liable in tort law. And it wasn't until the 20th century when we adopted the UK crown proceedings legislation that we actually went backwards on that. So, yeah, there's some very strong rhetoric. Uh, I think you can read Blackstone more subtly than that, but there's some very strong rhetoric that seems like it's, it goes back to time immemorial and that we should just follow our tradition, the shared tradition. But in fact, in the 19th century, we didn't and the world didn't end. And now we've got, a, we've got ourselves stuck with the Crown Proceedings Act and there's no government wants to give away its immunity or privileges from liability. So that's certainly a challenge in my own working life to revisit those questions. 
that's very interesting because that is an instance where we have a, a work or works that carry authority, but may, if you adopt them as a whole, contain ideas which create considerable problems. Aidan, are there any similar examples that you would think of? Well, I'm just picking up on Janet's current proceedings act. I mean, I had a case where, again, we, I had that problem with the, the, the Crown can do no wrong and, and cannot be injuncted and the like. And again, it was put down to the Crown Proceedings Act 1947 because, as in New Zealand, the earlier 19th century Scottish authority was very much the Crown, or, or even earlier, could be impeded and, and found liable and could have coercive orders being pronounced against it. But what happened in Davidson effectively was a dismantling of the Crown Proceedings Act so that Section 21 of this 1947 Act was then seen to be reinterpreted. It was almost like watching somebody with a Lego building completely take away the bricks and then build up something entirely different, uh, which then said it's actually a measure intended to liberalise and make it more easier to sue the Crown, and you can understand it actually this way. And it was an astonishing, an astonishing piece of intellectual usage. But it, it, it interestingly, it, it, in the case of Davidson, they referred back to M against the Home Office, which was the, the first case argued by Stephen Sedley when he was counsel, in which, uh, despite the Crown Proceedings Act, they said, well, in public law proceedings, you can get injunctions uh, against the Crown. And famously, Lord Templeman said, because otherwise picking up a remark on you, of yours, Janet, you would be reversing the result of the English Civil War. So yet again, you know, it always goes back to the uh, 17th century in England. M Miller, Cherry, uh, the leading case on that was the case of proclamations. The case of proclamations is 1610, isn't it? It shows the, the continuing power of the rhetorical tropes, but also the ideas. The ideas are maintain, being maintained uh, despite the assaults on them by, by the executive over the century. Jim, would you like to take that on? I think the interesting question here is not so much how the lawyers and the law professors use these ideas, because they're capable of digging behind them and understanding their context and nature and using them quite consciously and deliberately. I think one of the things which strikes me about this argument is the extent to which you remember Keynes's joke about the uh, uh, the ideas of the, the mad person having been uttered by some professor some years before, is that lots of other people use them too, particularly politicians. And politicians are very good at picking up what suits them from uh, any source at all uh, and using it to bolster uh, their authority. Uh, to, so to take a current example, which is uh, running through my head at the moment, politicians, and to, let's take Badger to go back to him at the beginning as an example, and the notion of sovereignty. There's a half understood notion of sovereignty in the heads of the present United Kingdom government, uh, which isn't strictly based on any detailed understanding uh, of the history of the idea uh, or of any reference to the crowd. It's just about I've got power. So the danger that's in the capacity to refer back to interesting ideas of the past is that uh, council like Aidan aren't the only folk that can do it. That's very interesting because it suggests the limits of knowledge and the adaptability of past knowledge has clear dangers. One solution might be to have more recent or contemporary 
authoritative works. And I think back then to Aidan's references to the Scottish institutional tradition, the idea that you could have up-to-date and authoritative summaries of law in some ways has been, even if it's not still, alien to the English common law tradition. But is the answer up-to-date, authoritative works? What do you think, Jim? I think there's maybe something in that. Um, uh, in that, I mean, There are really two different propositions in there. One is modern equivalents of Blackstone or Coke or, uh, or Stair uh, saying, this is how it is, guys. I, I tell you, on authority... Um, to quote the scripture in this, the extraordinary thing is that this man speaks with authority and doesn't refer back to uh, previous authorities. Or the alternative, which is, uh, in the Scottish context, as Aidan will well know, the state encyclopedia, uh, which is to have a modern statement of of everything uh, through the eyes of a modern person, uh, what the authorities are on X, Y, or Z. And and in in some ways, that's that's a great piece of historical scholarship but it's also actually a resource which kind of stops people digging too deep and looking for nasty stuff in the basement. And so a bit of both, perhaps. And this kind of goes back to the question which you raised earlier. Um, is, the, is the appeal to ancient history the, uh, a sign of the absence of, of modern clarity? And yes, it is. Aidan, would you like to go on from there? Yeah, I know. I agree with Jim. <clears throat> Depends on the case I've got, but it used to be that I would I would go into court and say, look, this is an authority which was decided yesterday. And in England, that carries weight because they like to keep up to date and make sure that they're on top of it. And in Scotland, they look, there's an element of disdain. They say, because in a sense, the, the, the older an authority is, the more authoritative it is. Because you've got an idea not so much of keeping up the law, keeping the law up to date, but preserving the integrity of the legal system, as was uh, set out by... Uh, stare. So, but the idea of having more uh, up-to-date uh, authoritative works and new stare, I mean, my immediate problem with that is who, who gets to say, by what authority are you speaking? Who is it? Uh, who are you to speak for all time coming? Stare was doing what he was doing and uh, a pattern of respect has grown up, but I don't think you can make yourself an institutional authority and say, this is, you know, uh, I am going to be the one who is henceforth uh, being referred to. That's an element, there's an element of, of despotism, intellectual arrogance, and also uh, undemocratic aspects. The fact is the law is constantly changing, it's constantly meeting new challenges. And the idea that all you have to do is look back on, on what some author said three years ago, uh, it, it just it doesn't, doesn't sit well with me, but that may be my politics rather than my uh, intellectual uh, concerns. And Janet, what about your perspective? I think it still helps to be dead to be authoritative. I, I just wanted to sum things up. I am very interested in the way that we've gone, because, partly because I was expecting the views of past authorities to be less positive than has turned out from this discussion. Partly going back to a previous episode that we did, again involving Aidan, where the assaults on A.V. Dicey and his views of the Constitution could best be described as violent, I think. Uh, there was a, had there been statues to be torn down, Aidan wanted them torn down. So could we just sum up very briefly in a sentence or two each, what you then see as the really positive aspects of the use of old works and authors to carry authority, 
maybe in things that we haven't mentioned so far. And we'll start off with Aidan. I mean, I still have an issue with Dicey, um, and I also have an issue with Badgett in terms of, I mean, I, I don't mind them being referred to, but I do want them to be contextualised, and I don't want them to be seen as the last word. They may well be dead, but they were dead imperialists. And fine, if you want to have an imperialist constitution, well, you know, they're great for that. But really, I think it helps us better to move on in a post-imperial age if we don't uh, canonise Dicey. And it would just be nice if there were better, as I keep on saying, better legal education uh, in England, which uh, allowed the proper contextualisation of the law, both historically and philosophically. But the fact is that less than half of my colleagues at the English Bar have law degrees, which is an astonishing notion to me. Uh, and it means that uh, even, even fewer judges have law degrees. They have a one-year conversion course and they then get into practice. So the, there is a problem, I think, with the proper intellectual engagement with laws and intellectual discipline uh, within the practice of, of the law. And we, uh, you know, that's what the Scottish tradition brings. That's why we have a Supreme Court with uh, a Scottish president, a Scottish vice president. We, we do have that deeper, I think, intellectual engagement uh, as part of our tradition. And that does involve wrestling with past authorities as well, but contextualising them too. Janet. Your comments, Aidan, really resonate with me. I've taught in Scotland and in New Zealand, and that's what I'm trying to do in my teaching. And I think in general, in New Zealand, people have a training. The Scottish system was adopted in New Zealand for honours degrees. We didn't follow the English system, and our judges come through that system. And I think I can say that we do it better than when I was going through university, that there's been a turning away from some of the learn a case a day approach to law, partly because there's so much of it now. We can access so much of it that you have to go to principle, long-held ideas. Do they still work? Should they still work? So, yeah, I think that certainly that's what we try and do when we're teaching law in a, a law school that cares about the law of its place and how it develops. And Jim, the last words for you. I think there is uh, a lot to be said for understanding where you've come from uh, and for uh, institutional and uh, intellectual continuity. Uh, I think it was Chesterton who said that tradition was the democracy of the dead. Uh, and what that says to us is that people in the past have addressed many of the same issues we have and have come to some kind of answer on them. Uh, and understanding that context and, and using it to inform the present is really very important. And therefore, the capacity uh, to refer back to, uh, to use old works and authors is really very important. Uh, the, the key issue, of course, is that they carry persuasive authority. Uh, they can persuade you, but they cannot determine your outcome because you've got to live in the world in which you live today. Thank you all. Thank you all very much indeed. That's been extraordinarily interesting. Uh, so thank you to Janet McLean, Aidan O'Neill and Jim Gallagher. And thank you all for listening.